This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. One year ago, staff writer Emily Witt visited Fargo, North Dakota. She was there to report on the Red River Women's Clinic, the only abortion provider in the state. The Supreme Court's Dobbs decision had just come down, and the Red River Clinic was in deep peril. Since then, 14 states in the country, 14, including North Dakota, have now largely banned abortion. Let's just pull over for a second. So about a year later, Emily Witt went back to Fargo and the site of the Red River Clinic. Yeah, there used to be security. Well, the security cameras are still there and the, and the, the kind of glass bricks to keep things private, but... There's really no sign except for the sign that's still up against the wall there that this used to be a clinic for, I think, almost 25 years. Um, all right, turning on the car. She headed east, past an anti-abortion billboard, past some parking lots, an auto shop, driving toward the river. The Red River, which is the border between Minnesota and North is really just a couple of blocks from the old clinic and we're driving over it right now on the First Avenue Bridge. We're passing by um, a recreated Viking ship museum. The Red River isn't wide here, but it now forms a border, a distinct border between starkly different realities for women. On the one side, North Dakota, which has banned abortion, and on the other, Minnesota, where Democrats are in power and they've expanded abortion access. So the women's clinic relocated from Fargo, right across the river, to Moorhead, Minnesota. So we're pulling in. It could not be more nondescript of a building. It's kind of pale brown bricks. It's two stories. Emily Witt met with the director there, Tammy Cromenaker. So you can just, you know, come out in the building, and then we've got, you know, um, first layer of security. Tammy's just a person that really has her act together. She's very detail-oriented. She's very organized. She's not easily ruffled. Did you have to do a lot of work? 
honestly, in this part of the space, not really. Um, we had to paint some walls. She's often asked to lobby or testify, not only locally in North Dakota, but also sometimes in Washington. I think she's really seen as a leader in the field nationally. In fact, Cromenaker had the foresight to start planning this move quite a while ago, when the Supreme Court first announced it would take up the Dobbs case, and that was back in the fall of 2021. And she figured that the clinic needed a backup plan, and she was right. Wow, what day did you officially open here? We saw our very first patients on August 10th of 2022, and we bought the building at 3 p.m. on June 23rd, before they, the day, less than 24 hours before they overturned Roe. Wow. So 47 days from purchase to seeing our first patients. At first, Tammy tried to keep the new location secret. When I visited last year, she wouldn't tell me where it was and and didn't want me to know or the press to know. It was less than a week before we opened that um, anti-abortion protesters said, we know where the building is and, and made the announcement. And it was sort of actually a relief um, because I'd been coming over here incognito. I was wearing a hat and glasses and a mask and coming in the back utility door, you know, because we had to keep the location secret and secure. Um, The building that she bought in Minnesota is kind of a very ordinary office complex set up for small businesses. So she had to totally renovate it to turn it into a functioning clinic. And I can show you pictures too from the remodeling. But like these cupboards all came with, we just had to put new countertop on. We were able to get all new exam tables delivered, I think five days before we saw our first patient. There was kind of a lot of um, motion happening. And this is just to clarify, we're in an exam room. There's an examination table. Ultrasound machine. Mm-hmm. Um, the machine on the floor over there is the suction machine for the in-clinic suction procedure. Um, you know, and just your regular, you know, kind of, what you would see in any other doctor's office on the counter. Um, yeah. If you, do you want to see some pictures really quick? Sure, yeah. <clears throat> I always say it's better to have... We some. were sitting in yeah. Tammy's office, and she brought up some pictures on her on her desktop screen. And there were pictures of the renovation, of the floor torn up, of, of her staff setting up the Wi-Fi on their phones for the first wow. time. I know. Um, so, the, yes, yeah, so the volunteer, I mean, I had been moving things slowly. Um, and then once we, you know, was out, then I expanded the field to, you know, our, all of our escorts. And there actually was one gal who showed up in downtown Fargo at 10 a.m. And at 6 p.m. here, I said, Vanessa, go home. <laughs> like, you've been here all day. I mean, people were running to the hardware store and picking stuff up. Um, but this was the Tuesday. Um, so this is what the room looked like. And then this is 10 o'clock at night. We threw the flooring down. Oh, my gosh. And 12.39 a.m. And I think that's the worst picture right there. Were you <laughs> exhausted? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Um, but but also, like, exhilarated and nervous and scared and, and all of those things. Um, I played that. Was that Sia? Um, I'm unstoppable. <laughs> I just, I needed like an anthem. She seemed pleased and maybe a little bit surprised that they had managed to pull it off in such a short time and, you know, really that they were able to continue on almost seamlessly, even though everything she had worked for 
for more than 20 years in Fargo had been taken away. And then this is our staff debrief after our first day. But yeah. So that's what that room looked like the day before. That is wild. And then, hi. Hi. Sorry to interrupt. There's a patient on line one who is probably like 22-ish weeks along. Her okay. last period was in December. Could you talk to her about yeah. where to go yes. besides here? Thank you. Hi there. Thanks for holding. What's your name? All right. And where do you live? Okay. All right. And did you have an ultrasound then? No. But what was the first date of your last period? So if we guess like January 1st, does that feel like a fair guess? Okay. All right. So yeah, you are too far for us right now. Um, and if you want to continue and have an abortion, you're going to have to travel out of state. There's a number of places that you can go to, um, but it's going to take some effort on your part. And I can help you find some of those places. Red River only sees patients up to 16 weeks. That's mostly because their doctor only comes once a week and procedures later in pregnancy need the patient to stay for another day usually. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to start texting you some of the names of the clinics, um, and you're going to have to call and make those appointments, and then we'll just keep in touch via text and get you all those other resources that you need, okay? Is there anything else I can answer for you right now? Okay, you bet. Take care. Bye-bye. Ay, ay, ay. Tammy admits that the other side has won. They, they achieved what they hadn't achieved in decades, which was to ban abortion in North Dakota. But the silver lining to all this is that the new clinic is actually a better place to see patients than the old one was. And she's also now in an environment where she's not in political opposition to every legislative body in the state. It, it's been a game changer, the, having the parking lot. Um, the protesters have to stand at the sidewalk over there. They cannot come into the parking lot. So patients' demeanors when they arrive in the building is so different. When they used to come in, they'd be, you know, their adrenaline was pumping. They were crying. They were upset. And, I mean, sometimes some do, but it's not every patient every time. Um, so March and April were two of our busiest months in our history. Um, we've seen a handful of patients from Texas. We saw a patient from Nebraska recently. Um, I think we're seeing people from elsewhere, they're not necessarily telling us. Yeah, what kind of fears and misinformation are your patients exposed to? Um, literally um, thinking that because abortion is illegal in North Dakota or South Dakota, that they cannot receive one. Um, and um, I've had a patient within the first few weeks, um, while we were still in Fargo, um, and the preliminary injunction was in place, say, am I too late? Did I lose my chance? Um, am I screwed? Is what they literally said to me. Um, just last week, I had a patient from South Dakota say, is it even okay, you know, for me to, to leave South Dakota to come there? Um, they are fearful that somebody's going to find out. Um, and it's why we've changed some of our medication abortion administration, because we don't want patients to go back into those hostile states. It only takes one rogue prosecutor you know, to bring something forward. Um, and I think people know that and have it in the back of their minds. 
And so what have you changed just so they don't have to come back or... So um, patients from banned states, whether it's South Dakota, North Dakota on and off, or maybe a place like Texas, um, those patients um, don't take right now misoprostol back into those hostile states with them. So the second medicine in the medication abortion regimen, they insert while they're still here in the clinic into their vagina. Um, so they're not taking a bottle with the their name and the clinic's name and the physician's name a bottle of pills that are specifically for abortion back into those hostile states. For decades, every time the North Dakota state legislature has tried to pass a law banning or restricting abortion, Red River Women's Clinic has been the entity that sues to try to protect it. And a few days after I left um, on this most recent visit, they had to sue again for a law that passed in April that almost totally bans abortion in the state. We still are a North Dakota corporation. And just because we, um, you know, moved five minutes across the river doesn't mean we're abandoning North Dakota or abandoning the fight or um, giving up on continuing to lead the fight for bodily autonomy in North Dakota. And do they have any ability to control who comes here no there is no law um we'd actually heard rumors that they had anticipated passing a law that said you cannot cross the border and you know i had some people say oh my gosh this is you know this is going to happen i said come on you guys there's at least three bridges over the river from Fargo to Moorhead that I myself might cross four or five times in a day, depending on where I'm going to go grocery shopping or which Target I'm going to go to. What are they going to have? You know, National Guard stationed on the on the um, bridge and a person who appears female and of reproductive age has to, you know, submit to a pregnancy test. I mean, come on, let's let's get real about this. It, but it's something we routinely have to educate patients about. It's okay to cross state lines for this care. It's okay to come here. Nobody's going to prosecute you. And you you were in a group chat with a bunch of abortion providers from around the country. I'm just wondering what you're hearing from your colleagues. I'm sure a lot of those clinics have had to close. How, how have people regrouped and readjusted? Um, the folks that I've interacted with have not had as close a proximity that we do from Fargo to Moorhead and or had the space. I mean, literally we <laughs> signed on the building the day before. Um, I think a lot of people said, oh, I'm going to, or I dream to. Um, and so some people have moved um, to Florida or New Mexico. Um, um, a lot of those clinics also transitioned to being sort of practical support networks like we can't see you but you can we can help you go to this place or we work with this fund and we'll help you get elsewhere um so I think and I too at a point I was having some survivor's guilt um and it was hard for me to talk to some of those friends and colleagues because I felt like I mean really it was a victory of what what happened for us and we're able to see those same patients and again, I'm not going to say it was easy, but from the outside, maybe it looked easy. Um, and other people had to shutter their clinics and sell the buildings. And there was no close, you know, especially in the South, the whole South is a hot mess. You know, there was no easy place for them to go to. And so I was having some, you know, extreme guilt 
um, you know, didn't want to talk about it. And so felt like I sort of had to keep it under wraps for a while. So it's, it's just been, it's been a really hard year in a lot of ways for providers. That's Tammy Cromenaker, director of the Red River Women's Clinic. Emily Witt is a staff writer, and you can read her reporting from North Dakota at NewYorker.com. In our next episode, a perspective from the other side of the abortion debate. We'll hear from the influential lawyer who crafted the abortion ban in Texas, known as the Heartbeat Act. And still ahead today, the music of John Williams. Stick around. WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Generations of us have grown up listening to John Williams. He's been composing film music for 65 years. That's more than half the history of the cinema. He's got over 100 credits under his belt and five Oscars. But it's not the quantity so much that makes Williams extraordinary. It's the impression that his music makes on us. Whether it's a serious drama or a blockbuster, Williams doesn't just lurk in the background. Okay, even I know that. I feel a shark circling my feet. That's Jaws. Am, am I right? I think it's actually Igmar Bergman's Wild Strawberries. <laughs> 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 All right, so it's either Jaws or Wild Strawberries. We haven't decided which. The other day I sat down with the New Yorker's music critic, Alex Ross, to talk about the legendary John Williams. And Alex wanted to jog my memory a little bit.
I'm thinking one of the many Star Wars films. One of the many Star Wars films? That's actually Superman. Oh, for um, God's sake. kind of <laughs> Richard Strauss, Ubermensch, <laughs> Zarathustra uh, kind of sound there. Um, but um, yeah, that's also uh, Williams in his, in his sort of high 70s corn gold mode. It's Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? Right, yeah. Come on. What I love about this is, you know, <laughs> you've got the catchy theme on top, uh, but then you have this stuff underneath in the uh, trombones and, yeah. and timpani, which is sort of somewhat syncopated and just, just kind of creates this substratum of, of, of sort of a different kind of activity, this jump, bum, 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 bum. Bum, 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 bum. Uh, and and it sort of destabilizes, you know, the the march aspect of it. This happens in Star Wars too, and you know these, you know the 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 themes that everyone remembers are simple enough, but the way he frames them, orchestrates them, fleshes them out uh, is actually very tricky, uh, difficult to play, um, and and just sort of just fun to go back to and sort of experience again. You just sort of hear new de- new details popping out at you. So the reason we're talking about John Williams now is because Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is about to come out. That's the fifth Indiana Jones movie. And of course, it stars the tireless Harrison Ford. And this is probably the last original film score that Williams will write. He said something to that effect recently. Alex, how old is John Williams? He's 91. God bless him. But I wouldn't rule it out. Uh, He's slightly hedged on whether he's going to ever write another one. And he says that it's hard to say no to Steven Spielberg. All right. Well, let's just stipulate that he's maybe on the back nine of his career. And can you assess for us just to start his place in the world of film composers? He is really the last great living representative of this long tradition of orchestral film scoring that goes back to the uh, Hollywood golden age of the 1930s when all these emigre composers like um, Max Steiner and Eric Wolfgang Korngold were, were writing for Hollywood. Um, and he's, he's really the, the last one. And the knowledge that he contains, just of the orchestra, I mean, there's, there's no one alive, I think, who knows more about how orchestras work than, than John Williams does. As much and, as and, or more so than classical composers and, and, and conductors? I think on a practical level, he, he knows as much as anyone. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So this is his latest score for the Indiana Jones. Um, what about some early examples of his very best work? He, he started his career headed into the 60s. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, he was um, originally came um, out of the, the jazz world, uh, but he first made his name as an arranger. Um, and so when he moved into film scoring, he was doing a lot of comedies. Um, his first movie was actually a, a, some kind of race car comedy called Daddy-O. <laughs> um, you know, as, as the years go by, you, you, you begin to hear, even in some of these early scores, like a, a kind of John Williams voice emerging. Well, let's talk about that. You've got a score to a, one of the more emblematic movies for him early on, and that's How to Steal a Million, which starred Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, and it came out in 1966. 
this is one of William Wyler's uh, last movies. And I was, it was on TCM, uh, and I was kind of half watching it. Um, and the credits were going by, and, and I forgot to see, I didn't see the name of the composer. Uh, so I was about to go on Google and look up the composer when something happened in the music, and I knew. These little quick skirling brass figures, uh, and it was just totally John Williams. This is the same kind of, of just very, very agile, um, active, brilliant uh, kind of music that you hear in Star Wars and, and a lot of other cues. I think about the fact that Schubert, uh, when, when someone was telling Schubert about a new musician composer on the scene, uh, Schubert would ask, Kanervas, uh, what can he do? Um, what's he got? <laughs> um, and and sort of John Williams has it. Uh, you know, he can, do, he can do anything, any style that you throw at him, any cinematic situation that you put him in, uh, uh, he can cope with. So it's just an incredibly diverse uh, uh, group of scores. And, and, you know, it's, you know, he's also doing uh, disaster movies like Towering Inferno uh, into the 70s, Towering Inferno, uh, uh, Black Sunday, Earthquake, uh, and a personal favorite of mine, uh, The Poseidon Adventure. Oh, the best. Uh, <laughs> the best. Something bad is going to happen. Yeah, but it's also rather horrible. It's also rather grand and That's romantic. Right. You know, it has a kind of slightly William Walton kind of British feeling to it. And you know, he really elevates these these pretty kitschy, uh, although lovable movies, these disaster movies, uh, with the the no- nobility uh, that he can't help uh, bringing to bear. And it's never bombastic either. Uh, because he doesn't pile it on. Uh, his orchestration is actually very clear and, and lucid. Um, it's, it's, it's not heavy romantic stuff. Uh, and so it, it, it just kind of dances around the images on, on, on the screen in, in a great way. You're a teens bit younger than I am, but not tons. And, and we've been going to concerts together for a long time at The New Yorker. We're talking about music for a long time. When we first started, I would not have guessed because your tastes are pretty highbrow, even when it crosses over into rock and roll. I would not have guessed you were, you were a fan of John Williams. Was I being unfair? I've sort of had a slightly checkered journey, uh, history with, with uh, sort of appreciating John Williams over the years, because you know, I, I was a kid when, when these classic movies came out in the, in the mid-late 70s, uh, Star Wars, Close Encounters, uh, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and uh, Empire Strikes Back. Um, huge events, you know, for, you know, 10, uh, 12-year-old kid, even one as weird as I was. Um, I, I was especially obsessed by Close Encounters, the, the movie and the score. And it plays an incredibly important role in the film. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, so this is the theme that he wrote um, for the communication between the, the you know, people on the ground there at that station at Devil's Tower and, and the spaceship, uh, the aliens, when, when they land. Um, the music uh, is a dramatic player uh, in the narrative. Was it just in the script, insert theme from John Williams here, 
figure out later? Or did, how, how did it work? Yeah, he, he came up with the theme. You know, there was an idea that, that, you know, there had to be some simple, you know, recognizable theme that could sort of blast through space and, and reach the aliens and serve as sort of the language of communication. Um, I went to visit him uh, not long ago, and he showed me the original score for Close Encounters, which sort of reduced me to kind of slack-jawed <laughs> nine-year-old <laughs> uh, self. Um, and uh, and he just, you know, he, he writes everything out. You know, there's this tremendous moment later on where the, the, uh, the you know, the keyboard player, uh, the human keyboard player gets into this this crazy duet uh, with the spaceship. Uh, and it gets it's faster intensely, and faster. Yeah, intensely contrapuntal and, 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 and dissonant. So in the score he showed me, he wrote it all out. But the amazing thing was, he, there was also a piece of paper slipped into the middle of this score, uh, and it was an array of, I don't know, 12 or 14 different attempts at that five-note theme. And uh, and he told me, I've, I haven't seen this in a long time, and, and he was looking at them and, like, humming uh, a few of them. <laughs> it was funny, <laughs> because some of them just didn't seem to, you know, work like, at it's all. It's Beethoven kind of, going, dun 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it was, um, and some would just be these kind of little squiggles. Like, ah, that, that wouldn't have worked at all. Um, and then toward the bottom, there was this the five note one that we know, and it was circled. What he told me in general was it it just takes a tremendous amount of work to come up with these themes. They need to be short. They need to be memorable. They need to kind of cut through the mayhem of these action and sci-fi movies with this just kind of storm of noise uh, happening uh, all around. And I think it's very important for his compositional process. They need to be malleable, uh, you know, because he didn't, doesn't just sort of plop the theme out and leave it at that. Uh, his scores are, are this kind of very complex string of variations on these uh, little motifs. And then when you go over the whole you know, Star Wars cycle over nine films, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a massive series <laughs> of variations on these light motifs. One of the things that you like about him is this, what you call an old Hollywood scoring technique. You, you've made reference to the 1942 film King's Row, which starred a former president, if I'm not, not mistaken. And that was scored by Eric Wolfgang Korngold. Let's listen to that and maybe try to relate it to John Williams. Fantastic. So you can you can hear where Star Wars sure. comes from. Um, when Williams went to George Lucas um, on Spielberg's recommendation, uh, Lucas uh, supposedly was was planning to issue the film with a lot of classical selections, uh, uh, sort of. Uh, uh, you know, imposed on the picture the way Kubrick did with with two thousand one. John Williams went to Lucas and said, like. I can do all this for you. You know, I can I can write new music that that echoes the kind of old-fashioned Hollywood sort of afternoon serial adventure kind of atmosphere. And so I think Williams deliberately uh, looked at these scores, learned from them, 
There is mm. a family resemblance um, between, you know, that corn gold theme and the Star Wars theme. Absolutely. It goes up a fifth, and then it sort of goes down a couple steps. It's pretty amazing that, that this body of music uh, exists. There's nothing quite like it in music history, uh, a composer working on a, a, you know, not even Wagner, <laughs> uh, wrote a cycle of nine, uh, you know, works spanning, you know, 40 years. Has there ever been in the history of cinema a director composer collaboration that even approaches the Spielberg John Williams relationship? Oh no, definitely not. You know, I mean there were sustained relationships between Hitchcock and and Bernard Herrmann. Um uh you know, I think uh you know um uh, Takamitsu had had great relationships in, in in Japanese uh cinema. Um but you know, this is this has gone on for almost 50 years. Uh, uh um almost 30 movies uh, with Spielberg, going back to Sugarland Express in, in 1970. That's his first feature. I think it was. Yeah. Alex, what should we go out on? You want to pick something maybe a little lesser known from this gigantic body of work? I think I might choose a score which is atypical of the most familiar John Williams style, which is uh, music he wrote for Robert Altman's Images. It's somewhat dissonant or, or sort of off-center in, in terms of the the, the musical language, um, but it, it also has its, its lyrical side. He actually brought up this score as one of his favorites, um, and so it kind of signified for him the kind of career he might have had if he you know, hadn't gone into film music at all, but sort of uh, uh, gone into the concert music arena. Um, and I think when you step back, you might see that this whole body of work really hangs together. Um, it is all one personality, uh, sort of appearing through uh, different media and in different styles. And that's probably more and more how we're going to think of uh, John Williams as the years go by. Alex Ross, thanks so much. Thanks so much, David. New Yorker's Alex Ross talking about the work of John Williams. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny with Williams' score comes out next week. Alex's books about classical music include The Rest is Noise and Wagnerism. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Frida Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputubwele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandra Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Chirina Endowment Fund. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. 
Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.